Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by True Niagen. True Niagen helps fuel the cell's energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports a healthy heart in combination with a healthy lifestyle. And now you can save 20% off on your first purchase at trueniagen.com slash Peter when you use the promo code Peter. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All of the U.S. stock market averages managed to eke out the week with small gains, and that was following another huge reversal on Friday. You know, the Dow Jones finished up 564 points, but earlier in the morning, before the market opened, the futures were down over 400 points. In fact, I think the low during normal hours was down about 350, but still was about a 2.5% swing from the morning low to the close. NASDAQ had an even bigger swing. It finished the day up 3.2%, but that was a 4.5% rise from its morning low. Though the NASDAQ finished the week slightly positive, it's still down about 11.5% on the month. But again, the losses are concentrated in the more speculative part of the NASDAQ. Again, look at the Kathy Wood Arc Innovation. It had a huge rally. It closed up 3.9% on the day, but that was 7% off its morning low. In fact, the new low 
64.35, which it set yesterday morning, represented a 60% decline from its peak price. And even though it was up on the day, it still finished down 3.6% on the week. So bucking the trend, NASDAQ up on the week, but ARK Innovation still down, and it's still down 27% on the month of January. By the way, we still have one more day. Monday will be the last day of the month. I think it's very possible that this could end up being the worst January for the stock market ever, certainly the worst January for the NASDAQ ever. One of the reasons, though, that the market held up on Friday was Apple, which was up 7% on the day. Apple released its earnings after the bell on Thursday, and they beat across the board. So that kind of set the tone. At least the market had that good news to hang its hat on. We also had bad news that came out of the trading app Robinhood. I've talked about Robinhood on this podcast quite often. I've been very bearish on that particular business model ever since the company came public last year. Well, They reported horrible results, worse than expected after the bell on Thursday, and the stock tanked. It was down maybe close to 20%, 15% or so, traded below $10 per share. I think the low was like $9.94 during the normal session. It may have traded a little lower than that in pre-market. I think it did, but that represented an 88% fall from its all-time high, $85 a share, and it set that high in the second week of trading. So it went public, and then in the very next week, in August of last year, the stock traded at 85, and yesterday morning, it traded hands at under $10. Now, we had this big reversal in the stock. It ended up closing at $12.73, so almost a 30% rise from the low. To me, that was short covering. In fact, I think a good part of Friday's rally was shorts covering. They have some big profits. They're going into the end of the month. They probably wanted to take the opportunity to realize some of those gains and put them in the bank. And so that's what this rally smells like to me. I do not think the stock market is out of the woods by a long shot. I think we still have some work to do on the downside. And by the way, The worst is not over for Robinhood. Think about that company because Robinhood's customers, the millions and millions of people that have downloaded that trading app and have been buying and selling stocks and cryptocurrencies, all these guys are going to go broke. I mean, if you have a business and all of your customers are broke, what's that business worth? I mean, you don't have any value if you don't have any customers, because if your customers are bankrupt, they can't generate any earnings for you. The Robinhood customers are the ones that loaded up on Robinhood stock and all of these other meme stocks and cryptocurrencies that are now collapsing. So they are in the process of getting wiped out. And if Robinhood couldn't make a profit during the bull market, which it didn't, how is it going to make a profit during the bear market, which it can't? This company is never going to make a profit. And if you're never going to make a profit, well, then how are you going to stay in business? They can't. They've been able to stay in business because they've been able to sell stock to investors. Well, how are they going to do that in the future when the people who already bought stock are getting killed? In fact, what's really going to be a problem for Robinhood 
is going to be lawsuits. They are going to be inundated with millions of FINRA arbitrations because all of these people who lost money are going to sue to get it back. And there's a big difference between you know, losing your money at Robinhood versus losing your money at a casino. Because when you lose your money in a casino, it's pretty much gone, right? You can't sue the casino, although some people have tried, but they generally lose. I mean, even if you get yourself drunk and you lose all your money, it's your own fault. You can't ask the casino for your money back. But of course, you know, most people, when they go to a casino, they pretty much know they're going to lose their money. I mean, they hope that they win. I mean, that's part of the excitement because you might win, but pretty much everybody accepts the fact that they're going to lose. And the reason they go, even though they know they're probably going to lose, apart from the fact that you have the excitement that you might win, it's that you have a lot of fun while you're losing your money. The casinos are a exciting environment to be a part of. I mean, they give you free liquor. They got pretty girls. There's shows. There's stuff to do. So you have a fun time while you're losing your money. Nobody had fun losing money at Robinhood. There's nothing exciting really about using that app. There's no free drinks. There's no pretty girls. There's no other entertainment. And the other big difference is most of the people who downloaded that app thought they were going to make money. You see, they didn't know they were gambling. They didn't think they were in a casino. They thought they were investors. In fact, they thought they were brilliant investors. They thought they were on the cutting edge of a new investment style and they confused brains for a bull market or more specifically for a bubble. So they're all in for a rude awakening. They thought they were investing. It turned out they were gambling. In fact, they weren't even gambling. They were throwing their money away because at least gamblers had a chance of winning. They had no chance of winning and they are going to be filing these arbitrations because it cost them nothing. You have a whole cottage industry out there of lawyers and people that work for lawyers out there on the internet trolling for people who lost money in the market so they can shake down brokerage firms in FINRA arbitrations because everybody who has a brokerage account has the right to file an arbitration. You can't throw it out based on the fact that it's frivolous. It's not like a normal trial where you can have a motion to dismiss and have it thrown out. Everybody gets their day in FINRA court. FINRA bends over backwards to be nice to the customers. So any customer who lost money gets his day in court to try to argue why he should get it back. And there is a saying in the brokerage industry that any small account comes with a free put. What does that mean? That means that if you allow a customer to open up a small account and that customer loses money, you pretty much have to give it back. Because if the customer files a lawsuit over those losses, even if the brokerage firm did nothing wrong, it's so expensive to defend against the suit and you can never get your attorney's fees back. It's not loser pay. So if you file a frivolous lawsuit against a brokerage firm and they waste $50,000 defending themselves and you lose... Well, the brokerage firm is still out to 50 grand. And so what happens is the lawyers know this, so they shake the firms down. 
And mostly what happens is the firms write a small check. Hey, I'll pay this guy off $5,000, $10,000, better than wasting $50,000. I mean, they hold their nose and do it, even though they know there's no case. They're just making a smart business decision. And these contingency lawyers know what's going to happen. They have these cookie cutter arbitrations. They're ready to file and they make a living doing this. And the way a lot of brokerage firms mitigate the risk is they simply don't accept a small account. They're not going to take a guy with $10,000, $20,000 who may lose $5,000 because they know that they're going to have to give the losses back if the guy files an arbitration. Now, the larger accounts, guy opens up a $500,000 account, million dollar account, and he takes some real losses. The guy loses $200,000, $300,000, and then he sues. Well, you know, it's worth it to spend the money to defend yourself because the claim is really large. But when the claim is small, why bother? Well, here's the problem for Robinhood. They have millions of customers and they're all small customers. They could be facing millions of customer arbitrations. How could they possibly pay to settle millions of claims? How could they possibly defend themselves against millions of claims? And you know, every claim has to be argued in the jurisdiction where the customer lives. So they're gonna have to be hiring lawyers all over the country. Now, if the losses are very small, I think if it's under 50,000, they could do it based on filings. But I think the customer may have the right to demand a in-person arbitration, which would jack up the cost even more for Robinhood to defend against these claims. Now, I think Robinhood may have been under the false impression that, well, you know, we don't have to worry about these arbitrations. We don't have to worry about suitability, for example, or churning or any of these normal allegations that end up bringing cases to arbitration because we're not making any recommendations because normally suitability applies to recommendations that are made. But I think the contingency lawyers are going to be able to argue that even though the orders were unsolicited, that the firm itself, with its marketing campaign, effectively solicited all these transactions, that the gamification of their app, they made it so easy to trade, and they basically induced these young people, inexperienced, right, novice investors, didn't know what they were doing, and they put them in a position to lose all their money. And they did nothing about it, that there was some type of fiduciary responsibility to protect these customers from themselves, to warn them, to do things. And once you saw how foolish they were trading and how they were buying this overpriced nonsense, that they should have cut them off, you know, kind of like saying, hey, a bartender, when you keep serving somebody alcohol and they're obviously intoxicated, maybe you're responsible if they get behind the wheel and then kill somebody, you got to be responsible enough to cut the customer off when they've had too much to drink. And I think you're going to be able to make an argument like that when you file an arbitration in FINRA. And again, it doesn't even matter if they're going to win. What matters is that Robinhood is going to have to pay to defend against each one of these claims. It's not going to be a class action suit because they don't allow those. It's going to be individual arbitrations, one customer at a time, and they've got millions. And you know, another thing too that happens in these arbitrations is the customers cherry pick, meaning that let's say a Robinhood customer made money. I mean, 
maybe there will be the rare customer that actually made money. Let's say somebody made $5,000 in their Robinhood account. But if you look at all their trading, they made money on some stocks and they lost money on others. Right? Let's just take a simple example where you buy two stocks. You make $10,000 on one and you lose $5,000 on the other. So overall, you made $5,000. But when the customer files the arbitration, he forgets about the stock where he made $10,000. He claims the stock where he lost $5,000 was unsuitable and that's the loss. And now you sue for the $5,000 that you lost, ignoring the $10,000 that you gained. And you're going to get your day in court. The brokerage firm can't throw it out and have it dismissed. So they're still going to have to have a full hearing. And the guy's going to get to explain why it's heads he wins, tails the firm loses. And you know what? Sometimes the arbitrators rule that that's exactly the way it is. A lot of times your arbitrators feel sorry for the customer that lost money and they give some of it back. A lot of times they just split the baby. You're going to get something. You may not get all of your losses, but they'll throw you a bone. But again, the brokerage firms know this, which is why they settle the arbitrations and which is why they don't accept small accounts because they don't want to be put in the position of having to give all their customers free puts where it's heads they win, tails the firms lose. You make money, you keep it. You lose money, you put the losses on the brokerage firm because the brokerage firm has to give you your money back because it's cheaper than defending against a frivolous lawsuit. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people's search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. Say goodbye 
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, Robinhood's going to find out the hard way why nobody on Wall Street will take all these little accounts. They've got millions of accounts that nobody else wants for this exact reason. So they could be put out of business simply on the sheer volume of the arbitrations because they don't have the resources to settle or litigate millions of claims. Then another cause of action could be the Robinhood system going down. Eventually, the market's really going to go into free fall, I think, for a lot of these names. So far, we've had a very orderly decline in this bear market. As we've been following a slope of hope, we've had a lot of big sucker rallies like the one that we just had on Friday. But at some point, I think we're going to have a capitulation. We're going to have a crash, a fast market, and these stocks are really going to tank. And then a lot of Robinhood customers are going to frantically try to unload their positions. It's probably going to overwhelm the system and people aren't going to be able to get out. And by the time they can execute a sell order, the prices could be much lower than when they first tried to sell. And they're probably going to hold Robinhood responsible for those extra losses, meaning here's how much I wanted to sell for. This is where the market was when I tried to log into my account, but the system was overloaded because so many other people were trying to do the same thing. And by the time I finally got out, the price was much lower and they're probably going to try to hold Robinhood responsible for the difference between what they wanted to sell for and what they ultimately got. And again, it doesn't even matter if this is a legitimate issue because the arbitration is going to go forward. They're not going to be able to get it dismissed. There's no summary judgment. Everybody gets their day in court, so to speak, and everybody's going to have a story to tell. I mean, even the people probably that weren't thinking about selling, maybe they were thinking about buying more, but they couldn't get through. They can pretend that they were trying to sell and not buy and still sue for the losses, even though Robin Hood would have prevented them from losing because they would have bought at a higher price and then the market would have crashed. But if you're trying to log on and you can't get on, they have no idea if you were trying to sell when in fact you were trying to buy because all you have to do is pretend you were trying to sell and then hold Robinhood responsible for the losses. Now, the stock market may have eked out some gains thanks to a big rally on Friday, but not so for the gold and silver market. Gold and silver continued to lose ground on Friday. In fact, gold was down 40 bucks on the week. We closed below 1800, 1791.50. Now, I think this is the support area for gold. So I do expect gold to rally next week. We'll see if I'm right. Silver really got beaten up. It was down $1.70 on the week. So it was a terrible week for the mining stocks. Gold and silver mining stocks down, GDX down 7.4% on the week. That was a big loss. In fact, the biggest losers were the silver stocks. Almost every silver stock I own hit a 52-week low on Friday. So I pointed out on my podcast how I thought silver looked like it was leading the market higher. Now it's leading the market lower. There is tremendous volatility here in the metals market as traders are trying to brace themselves for the rate hikes that Powell is promising to deliver. 
but I still think the market has got this wrong on the impact the rate hikes are going to have on gold and silver and on the dollar, which continues to rise. The dollar has been powering higher. It gave back a tiny bit of those gains on Friday, but the dollar index still closed at 97 spot 21 up solidly on the week as it closed last week at 95.64. So one of the strongest weeks we've had in some time in the dollar index. And again, the same thing that is pushing the dollar up is what's pushing gold down. And that is this hawkish Fed that's going to be raising interest rates. And those higher rates are supposedly going to be supportive of the dollar and a big headwind for the price of gold and silver. But while the price of yellow gold was falling, the price of black gold keeps on rising. Oil had another positive week, closing at 86.82. It closed last week at 85.14. But look at the intraday high on Friday. A barrel of oil traded as high as $88.84. That's the new high water mark. I expect that the markets will take that out next week. In fact, I think by the time Powell gets around to that first rate hike in March The price of oil will likely be above $100 a barrel, meaning that the Fed is continually falling further and further behind the inflation curve as it waits patiently to pull the trigger. But again, Powell is only talking tough about raising rates because he believes that we have this super strong economy, or at least that's what he claims. And he also claims that these rate hikes are not going to hurt the economy. They're not going to hurt employment because it's so strong and that maybe higher rates have been a problem for the economy in the past, but it won't be a problem in the future because the economy is so much stronger now than it's ever been. I mean, he's talking about the economy as if it's never been this strong. The labor market has never been this good. And so it's bulletproof, right? It's impervious. The Fed can do no harm. We could raise rates. We could shrink the balance sheet. And this super strong economy is just going to take it in stride. That is complete nonsense. First of all, if the economy really was so super strong, Why did the Fed wait so long to raise rates? In fact, it's still waiting. It's not going to raise rates until March. If we really have such a strong economy in the face of the worst inflation in 40 years, why wait? Why not raise rates right now? In fact, if the economy really is so good, why didn't the Fed raise rates last year? Why didn't they act preemptively? Why didn't they take on some insurance? After all, this strong economy could have handled it. Obviously, the reason the Fed didn't raise rates last year is because Powell knew the economy was too weak to withstand it. And it's still too weak because it's weaker now than it was then. If you look at the new economic data, the economy is already slowing down, yet the Fed wasn't willing to raise rates last year when it was stronger. And now that it's less strong, Powell is claiming that it's the strongest ever, and therefore he has the ability to raise these rates without affecting the economy or employment. Look, he is simply looking in the rearview mirror at how the economy was when it was propped up by massive Fed support. Now, Powell thinks he can remove the very support that was underlying the economy, and the economy is going to be fine. It won't. It will come crashing down. The reality is, it's not a strong economy. It is a bubble. This is the biggest bubble we've ever had. Powell doesn't know the difference between a bubble and a strong economy. In fact, no one at the Fed seems to know when we have a bubble. In fact, 
Alan Greenspan was famous for saying, you never know when there's a bubble until after it pops. Of course, back then I was saying it was nonsense. If it walks like a bubble and looks like a bubble and quacks like a bubble, it's a bubble. And this is the mother of all bubbles, yet the Fed still doesn't understand that it exists and it thinks it could take a pin to it. And in fact, because this bubble is so big, even the smallest of pins will prick it. The reality is the economy today is more vulnerable to a rise in interest rates, even a smaller rise than it was in the past, because the bigger the bubble, the more dependent it is on all that cheap money. And so the bigger the bubble, the smaller the pin that's needed to prick it. And in fact, Powell has already pricked the bubble, whether he knows it or not, just talking about the pin. We didn't even need the pin. If you think the pin is raising interest rates, Powell pricked the bubble merely by talking about using a pin. They haven't even used that pin yet, and the air is coming out. From head to toe, your body is made up of trillions of cells, which are all busy performing their specific functions to keep you healthy and resilient. But to keep up with all that work, a sufficient supply of essential molecules called NAD plus must be maintained for cells to perform their normal functions, which includes creating ATP for cellular energy, repairing your cells and supporting healthy mitochondria. Many common lifestyle factors that can decrease your cells NAD plus levels include alcohol consumption, excess sun exposure, poor diet, and even environmental factors such as pollution. True Niagen is a supplement that helps fuel the cell's energy and can safely and effectively elevate your NAD plus levels, giving each one of your hardworking cells exactly what it needs to perform at its best. True Niagen addresses the non-visible signs of aging like cellular energy production and helps support heart and muscle health. And right now, you can save 20% on your first purchase at TrueNiagen.com slash Peter with the promo code Peter. That's TrueNiagen, T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash Peter. Use the promo code Peter to save 20% on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let me go over a couple of ways that the increase in interest rates is going to throw the economy into a recession. I mean, first you have the obvious impact of the wealth effect, or rather the reverse wealth effect. And the Fed specifically acknowledged the benefits of the wealth effect when it launched quantitative easing. The stated purpose of its 0% interest rate and quantitative easing was specifically to make stock prices and real estate prices go up so that the owners of those assets would have more wealth and would therefore have more confidence to go out and spend and would have the ability to leverage those assets by borrowing, taking on debt, and then spending that. So the Fed deliberately inflated this asset bubble because it thought it would have this benign effect on the economy by creating additional spending because of the ability to tap into that wealth. Well, if stock prices going up is good for the economy because it creates spending, Doesn't it stand the reason that stock prices going down would have the opposite effect? It would be bad for the economy because it would drain the economy of wealth, deprive the economy of spending? Of course it will. And the bigger problem is 
a lot of the debts that were incurred when asset prices were rising end up getting defaulted on when asset prices are falling. And the bigger problem is for the lender who is relying on that collateral in the event of default. Well, now the borrower defaults and the collateral is insufficient for the lender to be made whole and you have a financial crisis. So this is what's going to happen. But here is going to be an even bigger issue for the economy, and that's going to be employment. And I talked a little bit on the last podcast about the fact that a lot of people are not unemployed right now because they don't think they need jobs, because they're making so much money in the stock market, why bother working, right? You can make money the easy way, why do it the hard way? Well, people are gonna find out that the easy way wasn't as easy as they thought. These get rich quick schemes rarely work. You end up going broke. And a lot of millennials are going to be broke. Yeah, they may get some of their money back suing Robinhood. But of course, if Robinhood just files for bankruptcy, you can't get blood from a stone. But a lot of these people are going to have to be out in the workforce looking for jobs. And so now they're unemployed. But also, you have a lot of retirees who are not going to be able to afford retirement anymore. A lot of retirees got suckered into buying these overpriced stocks. After all, they couldn't make any money through more traditional investments because the yields on bonds were too low to live on. Most stocks in the U.S. didn't pay much in the way of dividends. So I think a lot of older investors got suckered into the bubble. And so they had a lot of their retirement nest egg in these stocks that are now crashing. And by the way, they could go down a lot more. We're not over yet with the bear market in these tech stocks. But if these retirees end up losing a lot of money and at the same time, the cost of living is going up, everything is getting more expensive. Food is getting more expensive. Energy is getting more expensive. Healthcare, rent, their cost of living is going up. They have less retirement assets to throw off income to sustain that higher cost of living. What are they going to do? They're going to have to get jobs. So a lot of people who are not unemployed because they're retired, They're going to join the ranks of the unemployed because they're no longer going to be able to have enough resources to sustain their lifestyles. So they're going to be forced back into the labor market. And so that's going to push up unemployment. But here's another factor that nobody seems to be talking about. Think about all the companies out there that have been losing money, non-profitable companies. A lot of these companies have actually gone public and they're now publicly traded. In fact, last year we set a record, not just in IPOs, but IPOs of money losing companies. But there's a lot of money losing companies that haven't gone public yet, right? The VCs have funded these companies. They've been able to offset their losses with several rounds of private financing. But what has attracted the venture capitalists? Why are they putting money into companies that are burning through the cash? And that's because they've got an exit strategy planned with an IPO where they ultimately get their money back, not because the company's made a profit, but because they sold shares at an even higher price to a bunch of fools who buy the IPOs. So you have all these companies those that are already public and those that are hoping to be public that are losing a ton of money, yet they're employing a lot of people and they're paying those people pretty good wages. Now, of course, some of them are getting paid in stock options and things like that, and they think they're going to make even more money. Well, they're going to find out that they just worked for the cash, that the rest of it was pie in the sky that never materialized. But these businesses were able to hire all these workers. Now, I've been pointing out that a lot of these businesses 
are malinvestments. You know, especially I've talked about all of the companies in the crypto space. I mean, all these companies, by the way, are losing money too. None of these companies are profitable. And if they couldn't make money, again, in a huge Bitcoin bubble, a huge crypto bubble, if they still were losing money then, how can they possibly make money if we go through another crypto winter? Obviously, they can't. And so here's what's going to happen to all those companies that have been losing money and they've been relying on investors to make up their losses. The investors aren't going to want to pony up any more money. These companies are not going to be able to sell any more stock because the stocks are crashing. And so how are these money losing companies going to stay in business with all these losses? Well, some of them won't, right? Some of them are just going to go out of business. But a lot of these companies still have a lot of cash that they haven't burned through yet that they raised from venture capitalists or from an IPO. They're going to have to preserve this cash so that they can make it last as long as possible. They have to cut down on the bleeding. They may not be able to turn losses into profits, but they can try to minimize the losses so that they can maximize how long they can withstand them. They need to reduce the burn. They're not going to make money, but they're going to try to lose money more slowly. Well, you got to cut costs. And what is an obvious cost that you can cut? Labor. Mass layoffs across the U.S. economy are going to happen. So here you have Powell thinking, oh, we're going to raise interest rates and it's not going to hurt the economy. It's not going to hurt employment. The economy is going to move into recession. The stock market is going to crash and it's going to take employment down with it. And so unemployment is going to spike. And all of this could even start before the very first rate hike in March. But if it doesn't start by March, it will certainly start before November, which is when we have the midterm elections. So imagine all of the political pressure behind the scenes, right? Biden is not going to put any pressure on Powell publicly because after all, he chastised Trump for pressuring Powell and beating up on Powell for jeopardizing the Fed's independence. So he can't do that now without looking like a total hypocrite, although hypocrisy never seems to bother politicians. But I think in this case it might. So I think that Biden is going to keep his criticism behind the scenes, but he's certainly going to be putting a lot of pressure on Powell to reverse course if the economy is imploding and unemployment is rising, because we know one thing, inflation is not going to get better. The Fed is not going to do anything about inflation with these tiny rate hikes. In fact, even if these tiny rate hikes could do something about inflation, we won't see those effects until long after the midterm election because monetary policy acts with a lag. We're going to continue to see more price increases because the effects of the inflation that was already created in the past are still not fully upon us. So we're still dealing with the easy money policies of the past. To the extent that they tighten monetary policy, we're not going to see the results of that until the future. So I don't see how in the political environment that's going to be there, in the economic environment, that Powell is actually going to be able to deliver the rate hikes that he's promising, that he's actually going to be able to shrink the balance sheet the way he's promising. He's going to have to reverse course. The gold market, the silver market, the dollar market still haven't figured this out yet. Now, some people might think, but we need lower inflation. And so the Fed has to stay tough because obviously voters 
are not happy about high inflation. And so we can't just say, hey, forget about inflation, pal. We just need you to print more money because you have to focus on your other mandate of employment and the economy because those issues are still going to be more important. Inflation is the big issue now because it's the only problem the voters face. But once they start losing their jobs, that may be a bigger factor. I mean, sure, they're going to be upset about inflation too, but they're going to be even more upset that they've lost their jobs. And a lot of people could be even more upset that they've lost their retirement savings or whatever their net worth was. So they're going to put inflation concerns on a back burner when you have the greater concern of an economic implosion. But I don't think Biden is going to completely forget about inflation. He's still going to make it an issue in the campaign, but he's going to make it an issue of its greedy businesses, its big business, its corporations. They're sticking it to their customers. They're jacking prices up even in this recession. They're taking advantage of their monopoly power. He'll blame it on China. He'll blame it on OPEC. He's going to blame it on anybody but Congress and the Fed. And so we may end up with the Biden administration imposing some form of price controls or something like that even before the election so they can still pretend that they're fighting inflation even though they're creating even more inflation to try to prop up an economy in recession in a midterm election. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But somewhere along the way, the traders in the foreign exchange market and the gold market are going to figure out the end game and they're going to start buying gold and selling dollars because it doesn't really matter even if the Fed raises rates, even if they start shrinking their balance sheet, just like in 2018, they're going to stop. They're going to reverse course. We will go back to zero no matter how high we get above it and we won't get very high. We will be back down at zero. And even if the balance sheet shrinks somewhat, it's going to blow up. And here's, you know, the big problem. In every past cycle, whenever the Fed raises interest rates, if you look and go back to 1980 and you look at how high interest rates ultimately go before the economy rolls over into recession, the peak of each rate hiking cycle is lower than the peak of the previous rate hiking cycle. And that's because the bubbles keep getting bigger and bigger. We have more and more debt. And so the more debt you have, the lower the rate of interest that you can tolerate. So when you have a lot of debt, it doesn't take that big an increase in interest rates to have a major impact on your ability to service that debt. Except in the past, the Fed was at least able to get rates positive. Rates got as high as 2.5% in 2008. 
18. The inflation rate that year was below 2.5%. So the Fed was at least able to bring rates positive before it pricked the bubble and brought on the next recession. Well, now inflation is 7%. All Powell is talking about doing is bringing interest rates up to maybe 1% by the end of this year, 2% by the end of next year. This is going to be the first time since 1980 and this big bond bull market and this cycle of constantly blowing bubbles and popping them. This is going to be the first time that the Fed was not able to bring interest rates positive before pricking the bubble. In fact, this may be the first time that the Fed wasn't even able to raise interest rates above zero before pricking the bubble. This may be the very first bubble that was pricked without a pin. It was pricked because Powell simply talked about the pin and hadn't even gotten around to actually using it. We did get some economic data that came out this week since the last podcast. I think the most significant data point was the GDP number that came out Thursday for the fourth quarter of 2021. And this is the initial estimate, so it will likely be revised. The estimate was for a 5.7% gain, and that would have been much better than the 2.3% for the prior month. And we ended up 6.9% GDP growth in the quarter. That is a big, big number. And it was better than estimates. The deflator, coincidentally, was also 6.9%, exactly the same as GDP growth. That means that nominal GDP increased by 13.8%. Think about that. Nominal GDP growing at 13.8% and the Fed still at zero. What kind of crazy monetary policy is that? Unprecedented in U.S. history. And as bad as that 6.9% deflator was, I think the actual deflator would be higher if the government was calculating it properly, meaning that real GDP growth was not 6.9% if you deflated it with a more accurate measure of inflation. But just accepting the numbers at face value, it was 6.9% growth, better than expected. So the market looked at that as good news. And again, this is what Powell is looking at when he's talking about how we've got this really strong economy and he somehow thinks that it's therefore impervious to these rate hikes. But if you actually look at the numbers, 4.9% of that 6.9 was attributable to inventory growth. That is a huge number. That's 71% of the GDP is businesses stocking up on inventories. Now, why are they doing that? Are they doing that because we have such a super strong economy? No. What is happening is businesses are now recognizing that inflation is not transitory, that they were lied to, and now they're trying to change their business plans to function in an inflationary environment. Because In the past, a lot of companies kept minimal inventory. There was something called just-in-time inventory. Hey, we don't need any inventory. It's a waste of money. Let's order it as we need it, and we'll keep a low supply of inventory. Prices aren't going up. Prices could be going down. We'll do something else with our capital, and we won't hold a lot of inventory. Well, that could work well in a deflationary environment or a low inflation environment. It doesn't work in a high inflation environment. So businesses need to adapt and they need to change. 
And so what I think companies are doing, given the new reality of permanent inflation, is they are loading up on inventory now because they know the price of all the stuff they need is going to go up. So why wait to pay higher prices? Just pay the lower prices right now. And especially with the supply shortages and the bottlenecks and shipping costs, you don't even know if you'll be able to get the inventory in the future when you need it. The only way to know that you have it is to buy it right now and store it. So I think a lot of businesses are front-loading a lot of the inventory that they may have been buying in 2022, and they ordered it all in the fourth quarter of 2021 when they finally realized that they had been duped and that inflation is not transitory. So this is not a number that is going to be sustained over the course of the year. So we're going to see a reduction in GDP because what's going to happen in the future is businesses are now going to be liquidating this inventory. I think they're going to be doing it slowly. And I think businesses are going to change completely how they price their goods because they're not going to price off of what they paid in the past. They're going to price off of what they expect to pay in the future. And I'll give you an example of how this is going to work. Let's say I'm a business and, you know, I sell widgets and I have a 50% margin on my widgets. So let's say I buy them for $10 and I sell them for $15. Now, in the past, maybe I didn't really have many widgets. And as I got orders, I went and I bought them. But in an inflationary environment where the price of widgets is going up, I'm going to stock up on them now. So let's say I buy a bunch of widgets at $10 a widget. And my intention is to sell them for $15 and I have a 50% margin. Well, what happens if after I buy my widgets for $10, the price of widgets goes up to $12? So am I going to sell the widget for $15 even though I bought it for $10? No, because it's going to cost me $12 to replace the widget I just sold. So I'm going to apply my 50% markup to the new $12 wholesale price. So now I'm going to sell my widgets for $18 instead of $15 so I can go and buy a replacement widget for $12 and make my 50% margin. So in other words, the only way to really lock in a profit on a sale is to price what you're selling based on what it would cost to replace what you sold, not what it actually costs to acquire it. If you think about it in a more extreme example, What if the price of widgets doubles to $20, right? I bought my widgets for $10, but now the wholesale price is 20. Am I gonna sell those widgets for $15, even though I can make a 50% profit? No, of course not. Why am I gonna sell something for $15? It's gonna cost me $20 to buy it back. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna apply my 50% margin to the new $20 market price. I'm gonna sell my widget for $30, and then I'm gonna go buy buy one back for 20 so I still have a 50% margin. That is the only way that businesses can survive in an inflationary environment. So this is what's going on. Businesses are evolving to a whole new way of managing their inventory and pricing their products and consumers are going to be paying through the nose. But Powell doesn't understand what's going on. He just sees this big jump in GDP. Oh, wow, this is a strong economy. It's not. It's an economy preparing for inflation. Now, they should have prepared a year ago, but they didn't because Powell lulled them into a false sense of complacency with all this transitory nonsense. And so now they have 
a lot of ground to cover that they lost. They've got to hurry up and load up on stuff and start jacking up their prices to defend their margins. And what is the impact going to be, though, on customers of much, much higher prices? Well, ultimately, customers are going to buy less stuff. Volume of sales are going to go down. But businesses have to maintain their profitability on a lower sales volume, which means they have to make more money on every sale, which means they need even higher prices. So the economies of scale are going to be diminished. The people who do buy goods are going to have to bear those costs disproportionately to what they did in the past when businesses were able to spread out those costs over a bigger customer base. So we're going to get massive price increases. The GDP numbers are going to weaken. This is stagflation. Powell is living in fantasy land if he thinks he can raise interest rates even by a small amount and not upset this apple cart. This is going to be a massive economic collapse. The only way to postpone the pain is to reverse course. And again, that is exactly what I expect the Fed to do. And if the markets understood that, we would be seeing something completely different when it comes to gold and silver. But what we're already seeing, and I'm continuing to be validated here, is on the rotation to value. Because once again, value outperformed growth this week. Look at some of these telecom stocks I own. Very, very strong reeks big gains. In fact, the gains I am having on my non-gold stocks are still outweighing the losses on my gold stocks. So we're still positive on the year, despite the fact that the U.S. market is tanking and the fact that we're losing on our gold stocks because we're more than offsetting those losses by gains on our non-gold value dividend-paying foreign stocks. But ultimately, I expect those gold stocks to be our biggest gainers. So I think ultimately they're going to help increase the returns on our portfolio and they're going to stop subtracting from those returns. Also, we got the weekly jobless claims. Of course, we get those every week. We did get fewer claims than expected. They were looking for 265,000 new claims and the number came out at 260,000. Now that represented a sharp reduction from the 290,000 jobs that were lost in the prior week. As a matter of fact, that number was upwardly revised from an original estimate of 286,000 jobs, which in and of itself was a huge upward surprise. It was about 50,000 more job losses than they were expecting. So the fact that we came out with 5,000 fewer claims this week is almost entirely negated by the upward revision of 4,000 additional claims in the prior week. But if you look at the four-week moving average, that really spiked up from an upwardly revised 232,000 to 247,000. So unemployment is already rising. And again, the Fed hasn't even gotten around to the first rate hike above zero. Also, Friday, we got the personal income and spending numbers. More weakness. They were looking for a gain of 0.5% in personal income. Instead, the gain was 0.5%. 3%, much lower than expected. And again, these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. And we know that prices are rising faster than that. So real incomes are falling, even as nominal incomes are rising. But in this case, nominal income rose less than expected. Look at personal spending. That was supposed to be down 0.5. And in fact, they revised the prior month from up 0.6 to only up 04 
and we got down 0.6, so a miss there, but even off a lower number. But again, this is not adjusted for inflation. Prices are rising, but people are spending less. There's only one reason for that, and that's because they're buying less. Because prices are so high, they have to buy less, and that's really what's going on. So the real spending numbers should be going down a lot more if you're measuring the volume of what they're buying, but we're not, we're measuring the price. From the Fed's perspective, though, they really like the personal consumption expenditure index year over year. That number was up 5.8%. The Fed's favorite, the core PCE, which of course is probably the measure that is least accurate and most understates the actual rate of inflation or the increase in the cost of living. And that's probably why the Fed likes it the most because it's the least honest. That one was up 4.9% year over year. I don't know, 40 years high. I don't know when the last time it was we had a core PCE up 4.9% year over year, but that is so far above their supposed 2% target, yet somehow the Fed is confident that it's going to bring this inflation rate back down to 2% by slightly raising interest rates above zero. It's never happened. I don't think there's ever been a situation where you've been able to fight inflation with negative real interest rates. You always need positive real interest rates. But thanks to the Fed, that's an impossibility because the economy has way too much debt to ever afford a positive real rate of interest. We have so much debt that negative real interest rates are the highest rates that we can afford to pay. And in fact, they have to be really negative. If they're less negative, we probably can't even afford that. Another number that should be troubling for the Fed was the consumer sentiment number. The prior month in December, we were at 68.8. The consensus was for a slight drop to 68.6. Instead, we dropped all the way down to 67.2. Why is consumer confidence plunging? Because prices are surging. And that confidence number is gonna be even lower when unemployment really starts to pick up and the economy really starts moving more towards recession. Of course, Biden's approval rating is plummeting as well. And so there needs to be something done to try to prop that approval up coming into the midterm elections. And of course, a lot of that negative approval is filtering down to the Senate and the House of Representatives. So it could be a huge Republican wave in November as everybody wants to throw the bums out based on stagflation, based on the misery index. And so the Democrats are going to do anything they can to try to put as much lipstick on this pig as possible. And the only makeup artist they've got is the Fed. So as I said, a lot of pressure is going to be put behind the scenes on PAL to find some way to postpone the pain until after the midterms. Then, of course, they're going to try to postpone the pain until after the general election. I mean, that's all about trying to kick the can down the road until you get past the next election. Well, we've run out of road and this can is too big to kick, although that's not going to stop them from trying and breaking their toes. (laughs) 